This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, September 17th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. John Kyle is a retired deputy sheriff from San Bernardino, California Sheriff's Department. As a former law enforcement official, he has a unique perspective on the shooting of Jacob Blake, a 29-year-old African-American man who was shot by police on August 23rd. He joins me on today's podcast to discuss. And... If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Is China quietly boosting the unrest affecting American cities this year? Mike Gonzalez, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of The Plot to Change America, recently uncovered a surprising fact. An organization run by a co-founder of Black Lives Matter directed people to donate to an organization that has ties to communist China. If you go to the donate page of the Black Futures Lab, which was founded by a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza, The site directs you to send your money to the Chinese Progressive Association, which, the site states, sponsors the Black Futures Lab. The lab, according to Color Lines, seeks to engage advocacy organizations and legislators to advance local, state, and federal-level policies that make Black communities stronger. It will also craft strategies that harness Black political power to bring those policies to fruition. Gonzalez also notes that Black Lives Matter appears to have played a crucial role in the organizing that led to this summer's protests. You can check out his full report exclusively in the Daily Signal. Insurance companies are going to be out at least $1 billion to $2 billion after paying for claims and damages resulting from riots following the death of George Floyd on May 25th and other police protests. Axios reports that a company called Property Claim Services has tracked insurance damages from riots from civil unrest since 1950 and found that the damage from the riots of May 26th to June 8th will cost the insurance industry significantly more than ever before, with payments of $2 billion expected, if not more. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director, Dr. Robert Redfield, told a Senate committee Wednesday that masks are crucial in the fight against COVID-19. VSE span? Face masks, these face masks, are the most important, powerful public health tool we have. And I will continue to appeal for all Americans, all individuals in our country, to embrace these face coverings. I've said it, if we did it for 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks, we'd bring this pandemic Uh, under control. These actually, we have clear scientific evidence, they work and they are our best defense. I might even go so far as to say that this face mask is more guaranteed to protect me against COVID than when I take a COVID vaccine. Redfield also indicated that while a vaccine might be available at the end of this year, there would not likely be a widely available vaccine until well into 2021. I think there will be vaccine that initially be available sometime between November and December, but very limited supply and will have to be prioritized. If you're asking me when is it going to be generally available to the American public, so we can begin to take advantage of vaccine to get back to our regular life. I think we're probably looking at third, 
late second quarter, third quarter, 2021. The majority of young adults in the United States under 40 are unaware that 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust, and more than 1 out of 10 believe Jews were the perpetrators of the Holocaust. The survey conducted by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany also found that 48% of 18-39 through 39 year olds around the country did not even know the name of even one of the over 40,000 ghettos and concentration camps present in Europe during the 1930s and 40s per The Hill. Gideon Taylor, the president of the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, said per The Hill that the results of the survey are both shocking and saddening. They underscore why we must act now while Holocaust survivors are still with us to voice their stories, Taylor said. We need to understand why we aren't doing better in educating a younger generation about the Holocaust and the lessons of the past. This needs to serve as a wake-up call to us all, and as a roadmap of where government officials need to act. In Minneapolis, where the city council voted to cancel the city's police department after the death of George Floyd, crime is on the upswing. Reporting on a heated city council meeting, Minnesota Public News wrote, Residents are asking, where are the police, said Jamal Oseman, newly elected council member of Ward 6. He said he's already been inundated with complaints from residents that calls for police aren't being answered. The outlet also reported that the number of reported violent crimes like assaults, robberies, and homicides are up compared to 2019, according to Minneapolis Police Department crime data. More people have been killed in the city in the first nine months of 2020 than were slain in all of last year. Property crimes like burglaries and auto thefts are also up. Incidents of arson have increased 55% over the total at this point in 2019. Meanwhile, the police department remains in place. The council's move stymied by procedural hurdles and the need to put the initiative on the ballot. Now stay tuned for my conversation with John Kyle, a retired deputy sheriff who shares his perspective on the shooting of Jacob Blake. This is Virginia Allen, host of the Daily Signal podcast. I don't know about you, but YouTube is certainly one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content, from policy and news explainers to documentaries. If you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues you care about most. You can also search for the channel by going to youtube.com slash daily signal. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by John Kyle. He's a retired deputy sheriff. John, thank you for being with us on the Daily Signal podcast. It's my pleasure. Well, thanks for making the time to talk with us. As someone retired in law enforcement, I want to talk a little bit about um, the situation of Jacob Blake. People know him as the 29-year-old African-American man who was shot by police on August 23rd, and a lot of riots ensued after uh, this shooting. John, can you start off by telling us, as a law enforcement officer, your perspective of what happened? Well, in law enforcement, you're, you're, everything you're trained to do is about reducing your risk. You're supposed to protect the public first and yourself. And when someone is, is refusing to show you their hands or, 
or trying to get into a vehicle um, after you've had an altercation, you have to assume that they're getting into that vehicle because they're either going to try and flee or they're going or they're trying to get something out of the vehicle to hurt you, a gun, a knife, whatever you know, implement happens to be there. It could be a tire iron. Um, even if there's no other weapon in the car, the car itself is a weapon. So when when Jacob Blake ran to the to the car, um, he basically put himself in a situation where the the officers had a legitimate reason to believe that he was a lethal threat to them. And so um, I don't think either of those officers really wanted to be in an altercation that day. And I'm I'm absolutely positive neither of them wanted to shoot anybody, especially in the current climate. But when he went into that car, you know, he basically put them in a situation where they really didn't have a whole lot of options. Well, as you uh, mentioned that, so you were not part of this, um, the group of law enforcement that went in. We're just talking about your perspective as uh, someone who is in law enforcement who spent years serving. What do we know about what happened leading up to the shooting? You mentioned the situation with the car, but can you kind of walk us through before shots were fired, everything that transpired? Well, from a variety of different news sources, it's, it's pretty clear. You know, the original report was that he was a good Samaritan that was just trying to help you know, break up a fight between two people. And that is, has it's been proven to be completely untrue. Um, the, there was a warrant out for his arrest for, for um, sexual assault. Um, and the, vec- the, the woman that lived at the residence where, he, where they were trying to arrest him was the victim of that assault. When he came back, she called the police and said, I want you to come help. So she told the police she needed help. She invited them to come into the situation. Um, when they went to arrest Mr. Blake, he, was, he physically assaulted the officers, um, physically fought with them. They both tried to tase him, first one and then the other. That was unsuccessful. He tried to put one of the officers in a headlock. And then after this, I, you know, I, the, I, I haven't, nobody's seen the whole incident. They only see that little snippet of it. But, you know, they, those fights, even if it's only for a minute or two, can seem like they're hours. Um, you know, if you're in a fight where somebody's trying to hurt you, it, it, it just time seems to, you know, it seems like they never end. Um, when he started running toward the car, um, I understand that his kids were in the car, so they couldn't shoot at him from the front of the vehicle. I, if I were in that situation and I had the option, I wouldn't have um, run around behind him and grabbed his shirt the way the officer did. Um, but they really didn't have a lot of options because if they'd stood to the front of the vehicle and shot toward him, they, they would have had to worry about hitting the children in the car. So the fact that he was shot in the back had a lot to do with the fact that the officers didn't want to shoot the kids in the car, probably. That's how I, would, I, I, I see that happening. I see them trying to avoid shooting toward you know, innocents. A point you had made uh, before we talked um, is that the narrative that some are talking about is how the officers were wrong even shooting in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why this narrative, why you take issue with this narrative and what your perspective is? The main thing that I was originally brought to you is that it's become common to say, well, the officers, police officers need more training. The, the assumption that's built into that statement is that the officers didn't know what the rules were, that, they were, that when they shot, it was inappropriate. Uh, in this particular case, it was completely a justified shooting. Um, cops get a lot more training than most people think they are, and most of the people that are commenting on the training that they get have no idea what they go through. 
when I graduated from the academy 29 years ago, they were already teaching community, um, you know, involvement and, 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 and sensitivity to different cultures, um, you know, the, the, how, to, how to de-escalate. Um, there was a guy that, that had a training program, and I have no idea what the department paid for that training program, but the department that I was a part of literally sent every deputy in the department to see this guy. And at that time, it was about 1,200 sworn officers. You know, so they, the, you know, police agencies invest a great deal of money in training officers how to manage situations, how to do that. Um, and so when they start talking about how officers need more training, um, I, I wonder how much they know about the training the officers received in the first place. And my guess is very little. Well, on that note, John, um, what would you say in a conversation? I know we've heard a lot of them and probably even some of us have been part of those conversations where people do say, oh, better training is needed for situations like this. How do you think conservatives should respond? Well, I, I think that the, the first question we have to ask is what do we know about the training that's already being given? You know, if you're, if you're going to comment on something, I generally try and make sure it's something I know about, and I, I think most conservatives do that. But it's become a, a, a real easy thing to just say, oh, yeah, well, cops need better training. And, and that, that may be true, but that's a separate discussion from, from whether or not the shooting of, of Jacob Blake was a legitimate shooting or not. Um, you know, most cops are always seeking out more training. The department that I was a part of, um, we went for eight hours of training three times a year. And it wasn't just um, shooting, it was, it was um, different um, methods of de-escalating, law changes. Um, my department and most departments are always trying to make sure that we know what the, the best way to handle a given situation is. Unfortunately, there's as many different situations that cops run into as there are people that they run into. And so it's very difficult to cover every single base. You have to come up with some guidelines for how to handle them. In this particular case, though, there wasn't really a lot of um, good arguments for, for this not being legitimate. I mean, he was a violent felon with a, with a warrant out for his arrest. Um, he was uh, attempting to re-victimize the woman that he um, was uh, had the warrant without for his arrest over. And so it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to to say, well, you know, it's because the cops just need more training. That's basically saying it's the cops' fault this happened. It isn't. Um, the reality is that, that in every law enforcement encounter, it's always the suspect or the subject, whichever term you prefer. It's always the person that the cop is interacting with that makes the decision about what kind of violence is going to be involved in that encounter. It's never the cop. If it is a cop, then the cop is probably using excessive force. If he's the initiator of the, of the force, then he's going to probably lose his job and he could go to jail. So, you know, Jacob Blake decided how he was going to respond to the officer. He made choices that ultimately resulted in him being shot. But officers don't get to make those choices. Something that you had talked about before our conversation was how it's important to remember that in every legitimate law enforcement encounter, it's always the subject that determines the nature of the encounter and the level of violence. And so how would you explain this perspective in light of the Jacob Blake situation? They went there, and I'm sure that they started out with, with words. So they're your, your, your first and your best tool. Mr. Blake, you're under, you know, we have a, you know, a warrant for your arrest. 
at that point, he decided to to either run or fight. I don't know what initial. I don't know. I don't. I haven't read the report. Obviously, it hasn't been published, so I don't know how he initiated the the, the incident. But he decided how he was going to respond. He decided to throw a punch or, 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 or try and run from the officers or struggle when they tried to put handcuffs on him. Um, when I went through training, and I don't imagine this has changed a lot, we were told that we were allowed to use the, the, the minimum amount of force necessary to affect the arrest. So if you know they push, let's say, a level of three, you can go to four, but you can't go to eight. You've got to always try and temper your response to, to, to the reasonable response to what you're facing. So if, if somebody draws a gun, obviously that's lethal force. Immediately at that point, you can use lethal force. Knives are lethal force. We know now that Jacob Blake had a knife. So he was, he was prepared to use lethal force, and he had already demonstrated that before all of this got started, before, before he ever ran for the car. Well, looking at your own experience, uh, John, do you have any personal stories, perhaps from your own career or even others, where there maybe have been similar situations to what happened with Jacob Blake? Maybe not, you know, exactly, but at times in your career or careers that you've um, observed where something similar has happened and how that's maybe been handled in a better way. Well, I was I, mo- most of my career I worked in in corrections, and so. Uh, it was a fairly contained environment. There are rarely guns in jail. It does happen, but it's important to happen to me. Um, but I can tell you one example from my patrol time. And I was, um, we had done a, a traffic stop on a car that was kind of weaving down the road. And when we pulled it over, the subject in the rear seat kind of bent down and you could see his shoulder swing forward. So my partner and I both thought that he might have a gun. We met up to the car. There was a magazine pouch on the on the front seat. My partner said, "Gun." We backed up. Um, we did what's called a felony traffic stop, where we got a backing officer, brought them out one by one, and when we went to search the car, I found a gun under the front seat. Now, when I was standing there looking at uh, the back of this kid's head, it turns out they were all 15. Um, but I was looking down the barrel of my gun and thinking, "If he moves, I'm going to shoot him." That's not a situation that you ever want to be in. Um, and you know when you're when you're in the thick of it, you're not really thinking about you know the grand the greater implications of that. But if if that kid had had gotten a hitch on his ankle and reached down to scratch it, he might have died. That Fortunately, that didn't happen. They were peacefully removed from the car. They were handcuffed. They were taken into custody. The car was towed. The gun was was seized, and it ended peacefully. But there was no guarantee of that. And every day, cops go into situations where. They hope it's all going to be peaceful, but nobody knows for sure. Now, there's no way to ever know what's going to happen on any given patrol ship. Well, as you look at the larger implications of this and what's been happening in the country with all the rioting and protests we've seen, what is your perspective of states around the country that have defunded or are scaling back support for law enforcement? I think it's a very, very foolish thing to do especially since the foundation for it is non-existent. The, the narrative that, that is, is common in the media is that cops are just going around killing people randomly. The reality is that very few people are killed by the police. There's something like 370 or so million encounters between police and citizens every year. Um, 
And out of those, about a thousand people are killed by the police. It's not it's not a big number at all. And and, and then you know the, the amount of black that are shot by the police is, is a subset of that, so it's even smaller. It, it's just the, the narrative is that cops just kill people indiscriminately. The reality is very different from that. I had a friend that was involved in the shooting. You know, when he talks about it to this day, you can tell what an impression it made on him. It's not something you ever forget. The officer that shot Jacob Blake, I'm sure he's, he's, you know, he's remembering that every day because it leaves a mark on him. Something that I see as you know, potentially hopeful is there was this new poll that came out from Monmouth University that says that nearly two thirds of Americans, which is 65%, say that maintaining law and order is a major problem in the country right now. So people do see that there is a problem. Do you think we'll yeah. continue to see this as a growing trend? I, I do, because now people are starting to see what happens when the cops do stand there. Because in a lot of these cities, uh, in Portland and Seattle, the cops were told, just leave them alone, let them do their thing, they'll eventually settle down. They haven't. No bully ever backs down because you just leave them alone. Um, I think that um, the, the, the increase in gun sales right now, guns are selling at record pace right now. And it's largely the same reason, because a lot of people are looking at the world we live in and saying, wow. I need to be prepared to defend myself because the cops may or may not be there. So I think it's, it's going to have, in the long run, positive effect. It just The problem is how long are we going to let the damage be done before we put a spot to it? And it won't stop until we start sending in you know, large numbers of officers, uh, have a National Guard if necessary, and drawing a hard line and saying, this is it, we're not doing it anymore. Um, I don't know if you saw that uh, interview with the uh, Detroit police chief. They said, why aren't you having these problems? He said, because we don't let it happen. And they basically, when they start acting out, they shut them down right away. They don't let them run. They don't let them gear up or, 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 get, or build on themselves. They, they tend to be self-perpetuating. They just go and they arrest people and they don't let them out. So I think more and more people are starting to look around and say, yeah, maybe the cops aren't such a bad thing after all. And we'll look also. Well, as we look at that, what is your thought on the general attitude of Americans toward law enforcement? I know it varies with blue states and red states, but as we kind of look at the overall attitude towards law enforcement, as we've seen the events of the past months uh, happen, what is your perspective on where things are at now among Americans and then what things might look like, you know, in the coming weeks and months? Well, I think that that most Americans are actually pretty pro-police. Um, I've, I've seen a couple of reports on the survey that was done in, in the inner city communities, and the um, I believe it was 60% of, of blacks in the inner city said that they wanted to maintain current levels of police, and 22% said they wanted to increase levels of police. So that means that 82% of the people living in these communities want more cops. Um, the people that are saying they want to defund the police aren't living in the places where they need them the most. And I think that's pretty typical. There's a big disconnect between the, the, the liberal elites in, in California and New York and people that are living you know, out in the, in, the, in the middle of the country or in the South. I think most people, the majority of people, probably don't support defunding the police, but I think there's also a certain level of fear in saying so. What is your perspective on the importance of law enforcement? And as someone who was formerly in law enforcement, what might happen if they continue to be defunded in cities around the country? 
Well, as, as you take away resources, they're going to do less and less. One of the big problems that we're, we're seeing now, and you've probably heard the term Ferguson effect, when cops don't act proactively, they don't look for um, things, try and prevent things before they happen. Like if they see a guy that's obviously got a gun in, uh, in his waist, you know, if they, if they stop that guy and they take the gun away from him and they arrest him if it's appropriate, that guy can't go out and do a robbery later. You know, that, that prevention isn't happening. That was really the genius of Rudy Giuliani and Broken Windows and all of that was they prevented people from, from, from committing crimes in the first place. And that eventually brought down crime rates. Now they're kind of, they're systematically dismantling all of that. And I think that if they continue, you're going to get back the way things were, where cops only respond to um, calls for service, and that's what, where they show up after the fact. We really don't want that. We want cops to be proactive and go out and look for people that are, that are misbehaving and that are getting into trouble and, and, and stop it before it escalates to something more dangerous. Well, finally, John, we talked about in the beginning how so many people pivot to saying that law enforcement is in need of better training and that would, you know, mitigate situations like what happened with Jacob Blake. If there is any sort of room for reform in law enforcement, is there any area you say, you know, this particular area needs work? Well, you know, there's always room for improvement. There's always um, opportunities to, to, to learn better ways to do things. In fact, a lot of people don't know this. Local law enforcement agencies typically don't come up with broad programs on their own. The, the FBI collects a great deal of data, and then they disseminate that data, and then, then agencies are able to take that data and look and see what works and what doesn't. So with those, with those um, data sets, they, they try and continually improve procedures. They, they try and find better ways to approach people. They try and make sure that they're mitigating risk. If they can you know, head off a problem in the future by doing some intervention here. I mean, I don't think anybody opposes the idea that, that you know, social workers might be able to help people um, you know, improve their lives. But, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to send social workers into violent situations and expect that to um, result in good results. Training always has to be updated. You always have to be adding new training. You always have to be um, making sure that what you're training is still relevant. But that's an ongoing process. Every agency across the country is doing that every, every day, every month of every year. It's not like we wait until there's some disaster that happens and then all of a sudden we go, oh, let's do this different. That's not how it works. They're always looking for ways to reduce the risk to officers and to citizens. Now, I say as far as like major sweeping reforms, I don't really think there's a lot of things that they're talking about that really will make any, any positive result in any positive benefits. I think that a lot of what they're saying is basically we want social workers to fix everything. That's not going to work. You know, if somebody's committed to doing violence, a social worker is, is not trained to deal with that. You know, and, and what will end up happening is they'll send a social worker out, and then the social worker will say, this guy's violent, I want the cops here, but there won't be enough cops to go out and help them. Now they send the cops to the violence, and then after the fact, we look at what's appropriate to try and reduce those problems, get social workers involved, and so on. That, most of that stuff gets done at the, at the court level. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Signal podcast and discussing this. We really appreciate having you. It's been my pleasure. 
And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now on iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.